It's great to see you all here, and a very warm welcome to you all. Um, as some of you may know, uh, about 18 months ago, uh, we signed an agreement with the University of Cape Town so that they became our fifth partner. And we are very, very selective with our partners. Only five, we've got Seance, Po, Columbia, uh, Singapore, and, and Peking. But we were very pleased to have this African uh, partnership, and we're working hard uh, to build on that now. Well, how do we see it? Well, as an opportunity for staff and for students to, uh, to actually collaborate over a wide range of things. There have been some research discussions uh, on, only today. We also signed an agreement today so that we could have a PhD uh, student uh, exchange uh, with those students having a small bursary to work in each other's places. And we are now working hard to ensure that we have a summer school uh, which will be joint LSE uh, uh, Cape, Cape Town and hopefully that will start in 2013 with Cape Town really as a, a hub so that we can have, a, have uh, the building of capacity and, and links with many uh, un universities in the Sub-Saharan uh, area of Africa. So with that background you can see that I'm very very pleased to be able to uh, welcome uh, Max Price, who's the Vice-Chancellor of the University of Cape Town. Uh, this is actually the third of the lectures, uh, joint, joint lectures, and we're very pleased that he agreed uh, to come here tonight. Mind you, he's, he's a glutton for punishment, because he flew in from Cape Town this morning and is going to Canada first thing tomorrow morning. So I think we're very lucky that he's still awake and very, very, very lucky uh, that he's here. Um, Max's academic background is very much in the uh, uh, health, health policy uh, area. And he's actually not a real stranger to students at school because uh, at one time, fairly briefly, I think two, two years, he actually taught on our uh, health course, which is, is joint with the School of Hygiene and uh, Tropical Medicine. He's also not a stranger to the UK, as he was a Rhodes Scholar here and got a BA from the University of Oxford. Now, his topic is not going to be directly on health uh, tonight. He's going to talk really rather more widely and look at the whole uh, uh, social equity problem in the post post-apartheid era. Now, two, li two little announcements I have to make. Uh, the first is that uh, there's a thing that I'm reliably informed is called a Twitter hashtag. Uh, and that tonight is LSE South Africa. Uh, I should also say that this lecture is being podcast. And I have to give you a fact because I'm amazed about it. And that is last year's lectures, the public lectures, attracted 16 million plays and downloads. Now, I think that's absolutely amazing. So let's see if we can beat that uh, this year. 
Um, Max will talk for 50 to 60 minutes and has agreed to take uh, questions at the end. So, without any more ado, let me hand you over to Max Price. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here. The first question is why me, since as uh, Judith said, this is not really my field of expertise, talking about economics and social welfare and inequality. Uh, it is the price one has to pay for signing an agreement with the LSE, that the Vice-Chancellor has to give an open and public lecture. Uh, at the time, Howard Davies came to UCT and gave a wonderful lecture to our audience, and I was told that our other experts could not be invited here until I had done the debut on behalf of UCT, so hence you're going to hear me. But why this topic? And uh, it's partly because I didn't think we'd draw much of a crowd, and certainly not 16, what was it, million downloads <laughs> for a topic on, on some micro-issue in public health in South Africa. Uh, but it's also because the purpose of the collaboration between the University of Cape Town and LSE is to identify areas where we think collectively we can help answer questions better than we might do so separately. And when I try to think what would those questions be, where would the peculiar and spe special expertise of LSE and its networks and its uh, scholars here combine with the experience and insight and the laboratory that we have in South Africa and in the Western Cape, it seemed to me that the issues of poverty, inequality, industrial, industrialization policy, uh, development, strategies around global trade, that these were the sorts of things which, on the one hand, remain huge challenges, unanswered questions, and on the other hand, could benefit from the best practice, the experience, the comparative work that would come from bringing experts together. And so the purpose of my talk, the reason for choosing this particular talk, is to uh, suggest and to encourage collaboration around these areas and suggest that these are interesting questions worth, worth asking, that the answers are, are, are not there, and as you see, or you, as you'll see, I don't have them. This is all by way of an excuse to say that this is not my, original, my own original research, what I'm presenting to you is a synthesis of lots of other people's work. But I chose to take it on, and I thought it was worth doing this, because speaking to all the experts at UCT, at any rate, none of them could easily answer the question that, that I've posed, which is, what has happened to inequality and poverty in post-apartheid South Africa? There are lots of individual studies that look at particular aspects, and I'll show you them to you. But uh, bringing, trying to bring it together and get a bigger picture I don't think is, is often done, and I hope you will therefore find this interesting. Now I need to... So the outline of what I want to cover um, is as follows. First I want to examine, the, we're examining the trends post-1994, the advent of the first democratic elections, and we want to look at income inequality overall, and in particular by race and gender. And I should pause here to say something about the use of race, which is always controversial. Uh, I normally put it in inverted commas, but I'm not going to do that throughout the, throughout the lecture and throughout the presentation. But I do want to highlight the fact that 
Uh, we recognize race as a social construct, not as something biological or real in a, in a biological sense, that South Africa has, is attempting to move towards a non-racial society, and it's often controversial when one uses race and categorizes people by race at all. And in the modern post-apartheid period, there is, in fact, no law or no mechanism for classifying people by race, and so it relies on people self-classifying, and that itself creates lots of problems in the data collection, in the census data, and in research, because uh, it falls to the researcher to look at someone and say, I think you are colored, or I think, and no one is comfortable doing that. So it's particularly problematic in the post-apartheid period. I've also had to use categories, but the categories I'm using are the apartheid categories because it seems to me that is what is relevant. The inequalities that persist today are the inequalities that derived from the particular way that apartheid classified the population. And the categories that we use are white, Indian, colored, and African, where African does not mean anyone who's an inhabitant of Africa, and whites certainly think of themselves as Africans as well, but I'm using it here to refer to the black African South Africans who were classified that way. So we're looking at income inequality, we're looking at poverty, which of course is different and may be different from inequality overall and by race and gender. We're looking at the, then to understand that a bit better, the composition of income and in particular the impact of the social grants, which has probably been the most significant government intervention to address these problems. However, beyond social grants, which can be measured uh, through income inequality and poverty, uh, are the trends in social spending and welfare, which are usually not captured in discussions of poverty and inequality. And that's where I think bringing it together says something new. And that, can, that we're going to look at by looking at the impact of, these, of this social spending on asset distribution and the impact on health and education. And finally, to wrap up with some somewhat speculative uh, explanations for the trends and some also speculative options. So let's start then by looking at the first, the first item, the section on income inequality. This is the, this is the, 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 the population by deciles <coughs> from lowest to highest and the distribution of income in the right-hand bar is the 2008, da 2008 data uh, uh, on income, and the left-hand one is 1993, which was the study done just before um, 1994's election. Now, I have, for those interested, some references to the data that's been used um, across, uh, and it draws on many different surveys. There are labor force surveys that are done regularly. There is a general household survey, there's the census, there, is the, there are national income and expenditure surveys, and so I've had to use data from lots of different surveys and try to make, make it comparable. Sometimes that means leaving out some part of it, uh, and it's all weighted up for national, to, to, to give national, nationally representative data. What this shows you is that the richest 10% of the population continue to earn 60% of all income, and even within that 10%, it's skewed in that the top 5% earn 43% of all income, while the bottom 55 deciles, the bottom 50% of the population cumulatively earn 8% of national income. The, um, and what's happened between 1993 and 2005 is that income inequality has deteriorated. In that top decile, there is a higher proportion, and it's 5% higher. 
Uh, so there's a 5% greater concentration uh, of, of uh, income in that top decile. And as you can see, the shift seems to have been from these middle deciles. People have moved from these deciles into the top decile, and there is almost no change at all in the lower five deciles. So we'll come back to looking at some explanation of that. Um, but the, just to add a comment that the income we're looking at here is what you might call disposable income. So it's income after tax and after social grant transfers. So this, the, in the lower part of these deciles, that includes the grant transfers that, pe that poor people are receiving. Summarizing the income distribution into Gini coefficients, the, um, looking at, if you look at the bottom row first, I wonder, is, do, you, do we want to drop these lights at all? Can you see clearly? You, you can see or you want the lights off? You can see. You can see. Um, in the bottom line, which is overall Gini coefficients, <coughs> excuse me, uh, has deteriorated, as you would expect from the, from the other graph from 0.66 in 1993 to 0.68 to 0.7. Of course, in a Gini coefficient, as you get closer to 1, you move to maximum inequality. Zero is perfectly equal. Um, but if we look at the, at the breakdown by race as well, you see that within each race group, inequality has increased for Africans from 0.54 to 0.62, coloreds, 0.44 to 0.54, uh, Indians from 0.47 to 61, which is a 20, there's 15 basis point increase, a 10 basis point increase, and an 8 basis point increase, compared to whites, where there is a 7 point increase and an only a 4, 4 point increase overall. So most of the inequality that has developed in the last th 15 years has been within the black group, black collectively meaning African, colored, and Asian. And in fact, um, through uh, other analysis, which I'm not showing here, uh, to measure inter-race inequality, which is uh, measured through a general entropy measure of inequality, uh, there, is a, there is convincing evidence that the between-race inequality has reduced. So whites are less wealthy relative to black people today than they were before. The inequality across race is reduced. The increase in overall inequality is as a result of intra-race um, increase. Looking at gender, the um, colors are different on my diagram, but anyway, the, 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 these are women. The lighter color is women and darker is men. 1995 to 2007, you can see it's a different data set. And men in both cases remain in the majority in the workforce, but a not insignificant increase in women's employment and women's participation from 39% to 43%. And in fact, of all new jobs created between 1995 and 2007, 56% uh, were filled by women. So that's a very high proportion when you think about it, that they start off with only 39% of the workforce uh, being women for 56% of all new jobs to be taken by women. However, unemployment amongst women has increased. And what, what's been happening alongside this increase is, of course, a general increase by women in the, in the, in the workforce and therefore uh, more women seeking work as well as uh, more women getting, getting, uh, finding employment. If we look at the actual earnings of women relative to men, 
Over the last 17 years, there's been a significant uh, improvement in, in one sense, it would appear, that taking crudely what all women uh, earn per month divided by the number of women, the gap was 36%. In other words, women were earning 70, 60, 64% before um, of what men were earning, and it drops to 73%, or so it, they, they, their percent improves, so they now earn um, 73%. And the gap has dropped from 36 to 28%. So at face value, it would seem that women's income has improved, and it has, uh, in, the, in, in, the, in, the, in the workforce. But the, when you adjust the income, and you have to adjust it for uh, the fact that women occupy different kinds of jobs, they work in different sectors, they work for different numbers of hours, that is not taken into account in the, in the total income. But once you adjust it, it turns out that the, the, the hourly wage difference, say, uh, for women has remained absolutely constant at 29%. So women, women's earning is 29% less than men's. Uh, it was in, in 1995, and it is in 2007. So participation has improved. Employment has improved. Total earnings by women has increased, but um, <coughs> not, the, not the hourly rate. So, pulling this together <coughs> in the in analysis of who is earning what in the top decile, and if you recall that first uh, graph, you, you would recall that almost all inequality and changes in inequality has happened in that top decile of the distribution. And in the top decile, comparing 1995 to 2007, the first dramatic finding is that white men have dropped from occupying 57% of that top decile to nearly half, uh, 30, um, to 30%. So that's very significant. Why that, um, secondly, that the, um, that the percentage of women in the top earnings decile increased from 20%. Women, this is the pie. These slices here collectively are women in the labor market, and over there, that collection of pies, of slices. So women have increased uh, in the top decile from 20% in 1995 to 33% in 2007, and that increase is almost entirely accounted for by black women, because white women were 12% before and 13% now. So all of this increase is black women in the top decile. And then looking at at, at black uh, workers, black people in general, men and women, in the top decile, increased from 31% to 57%. So what that means is that more than half, 57% of people in the top decile are black today, compared to under a third uh, 15 years ago. So that is a dramatic change, and that is, as I said, reinforcing the earlier point, the, uh, the evidence that intra-race inequality has increased dramatically, with many black people moving into those top deciles, not many, but enough to make a difference, inter-race inequality has reduced with a far smaller proportion of the top decile being made up uh, by whites than was the case before. Speculating on what's really going on here and, and why this has happened, um, it, the, the, this, and this is not uh, empirically established, but I think it's a general understanding which makes intuitive sense, is that the the increased concentration in the top decile has mainly been at the expense of the middle deciles, as we saw in the frequency distribution, 
and thus reflects the ability of black people who were modestly educated, professionals as well, teachers, nurses, people in small businesses, with some education, but previously restricted from entering a whole lot of jobs, entering the labor force, or, enter, or getting government jobs, suddenly in 1994, well not suddenly because it did happen over, it was already opening up beforehand, but dramatically after 1994, being drawn into these more senior positions, very strong affirmative action policies, uh, which uh, just uh, to explain how that works, every company above a certain size has to set targets for how many women, black people, and people with disability they would employ over the next three years. Those targets are approved by the Department of Labor. Companies have to submit annual reports. And these jobs are usually in the jobs where whites have dominated. Of course, it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't matter uh, to in, in, in the relatively unskilled uh, jobs where 90% of workers are black anyway. There's no requirement to have an employment equity target <coughs> or affirmative action. So the change in that job market is happening in the better paid jobs. And the people and, and all whoever was available has been sucked into those jobs uh, because of the pressure and the competition uh, from all sectors to find black employees. Another important factor we'll see in a moment has been the black economic empowerment, which has been a policy of increasing black ownership of companies and of and of both public and private, and uh, so that the to the extent that in the top decile income comes from capital. Uh, there are many more black people who are deriving income from capital. We'll come to that in, in a moment. So in the lowest deciles, on the other hand, these are largely rural and poor urban, informal settlement, poorly educated people who have been unable to take advantage of the post-apartheid dividend to get the jobs. They were always in those jobs. If those jobs haven't increased and they haven't significantly, then there was no greater opportunity for employment or income increase. It's the it's the middle and upper income jobs that have uh, resulted in this change in intra-racial, uh, within race inequality. So just to summarize the story on income inequality, uh, against the background of real GDP growth over the 15-year period of 3.5% per annum, which is 68% overall, income inequality increased and is now one of the highest, South Africa has one of the highest Gini coefficients in the world and you, you would have seen that. Um, the increase is mainly interracial. Interracial inequality was reduced, considerable fall in the share of whites amongst top earners, and gender inequality has been reduced with more women in employment, also, although also more unemployed. Average earnings of women increased relative to men. Percent of women in the top decile increased from 20 to 33%. But what has then happened to poverty? Because as you know, it's quite possible for inequality to improve or to deteriorate with a paradoxical impact on poverty. Poverty, it's always controversial to define and to work out how to measure poverty, but what these studies have done is to use the foster greer thorbeck poverty guidelines and indices. A study by Huchenwien and Osle in 2006 uh, determined a poverty line in South Africa, and that has been, for these studies, inflated um, to the relevant dates. And the poverty line was based on a basic needs costing um, approach. And, it, and the line being used here is 515 rand per, per, per month, 
which works out to be about four US dollars a day with purchasing power parity, just to give you some benchmark against the often quoted one or two dollars a day that's used in, in international literature. So P0 uh, is the proportion of the population that falls below that poverty line. It's a head count, or it's, it's based on the head count. And in 1993, 0.5656% of the population were below the poverty line, and in nine, and 2008, 54%. So indeed, while inequality has increased, poverty measured by P0, the head count, has reduced, although very slightly, only very slightly, 2%. P1 is, uh, the, is, is the mean poverty gap. What P1 is, is a measure of is the depth of poverty, in a way. And P1 can take a value between 0 and P0. So if everyone who was below the poverty line was very poor, let's say earned nothing, then the value of P1 would be 0.56. It would be the same as, as, as P0. It would treat all those below the poverty line as being completely poor. Um, if, however, all those below the poverty line were only just slightly below the poverty line, then P1 would, be, would approximate to zero, and it would be at zero at the P1. So the depth, this figure, as it increases, is a measure of deepening poverty, and its maximum value would be P0. So what this tells us is that while there has been just a very marginal reduction in the number of people who are poor, there's a much more substantial reduction uh, down to 0.28 compared to the 0.54 there, 0.28 of people measuring the depth of poverty. And the transfers or the, the interventions have had some significant impact on the depth of poverty. So coming back just to the outline so that you can keep track of where we are and how far we've got to go, uh, we've talked about income inequality, uh, by race and gender. We've talked a little bit about poverty to show the, the actual figures. And now to make some sense of it, we need to look at what's happening within that income and how is it composed. This is a, a graph, of course, it's 100%. It's a proportional representation, proportional distribution by income decile, poorest decile, richest decile, of what people's income is made up of. And in 1993, People in the poorest decile had about 30% of their income from remuneration. A very significant share coming from remittances, nearly 50%. Remittances was usually from people who were migrant workers. They were working in the towns or in the mines and the factories, and they send money back to their, their households, so that's where their income comes from. And a relatively small proportion in these deciles from government which would have been transfers, and at that time would mostly have been old age pension, state pension as it's called, and was already in place uh, for, uh, in, in 1994, although not widely, no, not, not, not many people accessed it, particularly on the poorest group. And look at the difference of what happens when we go to 2008. The government grants, which is this black section there, uh, dramatically increased, very much pro-poor, so that as a proportion, this contributes now the majority of people's income all the way up to about the fifth decile and continues up to high deciles as well. Labor, income from labor, remuneration from work has a fairly linear increase as you would expect uh, with, with income. The, more, the higher the decile, the more you earn, the, more, the higher the proportion that's going to be coming from your earnings. And it's really only the top decile that where capital 
becomes a significant contributor to income. That's earnings from rental, from shares, from ownership of companies. The striking feature in, in contrasting the two periods is that in the poorest decile, in 1993, government income is about 10% of the share, uh, sorry, is about 15% of, the, of income, and it increases to 73% uh, for 2008. This is the same composition of household income, but the difference here is that it's absolute, not, not, uh, not, not all at 100%. And once again, you see the very um, high 60% of income going to the top decile, most of it through remuneration and labor. And this is the, the, the black there is the government grants, the social grants on each bar. Uh, I'll come back to looking at those in more detail on a larger graph. Uh, this is the only decile which, in which capital is a significant uh, contributor. It's that group there. It's partly because of that very high proportion of, of um, labor remuneration that contributes to in inequality. So when you look at, the, at what it is that contributes to inequality and you, and you disaggregate it, the labor market and employment accounts for about 88% of inequality and of the Gini coefficient that we saw in, in, in both periods because, of, because it's such a large section. And that takes us, therefore, to looking slightly more carefully at unemployment because that is the main driver of inequality. And there have been, there is, the increasing inequality is largely due to the relative access to jobs and the increase in salaries for scarce skills. I mentioned the explanation of why um, black people have moved into that top decile. That has also had the further knock-on effect that wages in the top two deciles probably have increased disproportionately to the rest of the economy because there is a great scarcity of skills in the face of quite significant economic growth and demand for, for skilled labor. Uh, and that's the legacy of the past educational system. Um, it's also, uh, to some extent, a consequence of affirmative action uh, that the um, need to employ people and compete for a very small pool of people who have the necessary qualifications pushes up those wages um, rel relative to what the market might otherwise have to pay. Economic growth, however, has not been jobless. People often talk about the South African economy. They look at this growth of 70% over, over 15 years, and they look at the growing unemployment, and the immediate conclusion is that either there hasn't been a growth in jobs or jobs have remained static. In fact, between 1995 and 2007, 3.1 million, there's a, an increase in the number of jobs. 3.1 3 million new jobs, of course they're not all new jobs, Some, they're more new jobs because other jobs have disappeared. But the net change is 3.1 million. However, there are 3.6 million more people who are unemployed. So if you do the arithmetic, there are 6.7 million more people who are in the labor market uh, in 2007 than in 1995. Roughly half of them have found jobs through the new job, new job growth, but half of them have not. So it's a mixed picture um, and not, not that easy to, uh, to, 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 to summarize in a single variable. And although, as we said, women's share of employment has increased, they are also more unemployed and more vulnerable to unemployment than men.
Now, in this graph of the composition of household income, I've taken off the top two deciles, 9 and 10, so that we can look at the others uh, with more easily, so the scale is, redu is, is increased. And, so, and, and now what we see is that, firstly, the government grants, the social grants, which are the black uh, square, appear in all eight deciles, not just in the lowest few, not just in the bottom few deciles, and it, they form almost an equal proportion well, an equal absolute amount, not an equal proportion, an equal absolute amount in all of those. And that's not, um, that's not too surprising. Sorry, that's the 1993 figure. Let me show you the 2008 figure. The graphs look very similar, but you'll see as I change the slide that the social grants increase slightly. So these social grants have, have now increased. And, but still, the absolute amount is similar across the deciles. Interestingly, the poorest decile has a social grant uh, which is less than half of the others. And so there's something going on there, and I'll come back to that in a moment. But for the others, this would be reasonably good pro-poor targeting. And the reason that so many deciles is because the poverty line is roughly here at the sixth decile. So all of these, as we said before, 50% of the population are earning less than 8% of total income. So the poverty line is somewhere around the sixth decile, so all of these will be eligible on any of the means-tested systems or others for social grants. In fact, many of the reason why some of these are there too is because the grants are distributed based on an individual income, not a household income. So if you're a pensioner and you don't have wealth and you don't have any other source of income, you can qualify for a pension, social grant pension. However, you'll be living in a household which may be very poor. Um, and so that's why we find um, pensions in, in, in poor and, and slightly less poor households. <coughs> so looking at these figures, um, the, the, this, the scale of, this, of these social grants is huge. In the first five deciles, what you also see is that social grants contribute more than 50% or up to nearly more than 50% of the total income of these households. So they're completely reliant on that. And 40 and 30% of those households. It's also interesting what's happened to the dynamics of remittances. That's these little purple ones, uh, which in fact across the two periods have decreased. In, the, in, in other words, in 2008, remittances have reduced uh, as, a, as a share of income in the poor households. And that's raised some questions and research around whether the social grants are functioning in any way as a disincentive to remittances. And it appears that, uh, just very briefly, that social grants are not reducing the participation in the workforce, but may be reducing the tendency to remit money. So if there is a pension coming into a household in a rural area, the urban worker may not be sending as much money to the rural area as they were before. It, it may be that that's the, the best explanation for, to make sense of the data, but not yet established by checking it on the ground. So um, the social grants have not only increased in value, but uh, in, in 1993, only one-fifth of all households received some kind of grant, whereas in 2008, the proportion was fully a half of all households. So half of all households in, in South Africa are getting some form of social grant. And here you see the dramatic increase uh, going from 1997 to 2011. And cumulatively, that is a 140% increase in real 
per capita social spending compared with a per capita growth of 70%. So the, the amount spent is twice as much as the per capita growth and consuming twice as much of, of government budget or more than twice as much of government budget. This is just to take one set of grants, but a very important set, the childcare grants. So uh, the, this is grants to single women uh, who are looking after young children, and it started off children under 12, and it's just been ex increased in the last budget to children up to the age of 18. And from 1999, when there were almost no childcare grants, um, in to 2010, where 10 million, just under 10 million people, 9.4 million children, are benefiting from child support grant uh, out of a total of 18 million um, out of a total of 18 million children. So more than so half of all children are benefiting from the grant. Two and a half million people are receiving the state old age pension. 1.3 million are receiving disability grants, and 570,000 half a million are receiving foster care grants. That's partly a response to the AIDS pandemic and children being taken into other families. Um, but the foster care grant is the only one that is not means-tested. All the others are means-tested. If we look at the value of these grants, just to highlight what may be a paradox again, you'll see the value here of, say, the pension grant and the disability grant in 2010 is double the value of the poverty line that we identified. And so you might say, why, if so many people are getting uh, old-age pension grants, has this not lifted them? above the poverty line. And the reason is that usually these are people in households with four or five people, there may be one or two pension, pensions, but four or five or more people in the household, others not earning anything. And so the per capita household income, which is the way that the household is classified in the various, in the deciles, remains below the poverty line. In the case of the child care support grant, it's 250 rand per child, up to a maximum of six. Um, children in a, in a household, but again, under the, below the poverty line. So just to finally, uh, on this section, return to this anomaly in the lowest decile of why it is that in the poorest 10%, they seem to not be benefiting. Is this a problem of, of targeting the social grants, the childcare grants, the pensions, um, and the others? And uh, so we did a decomposition of the population structure of this decile compared to the other deciles. And very interestingly, it turns out to be a different structure altogether. These are all fairly uh, typical households, typical in the South African sense. This decile is, tends to be men, generally younger men who are out of school and middle age, very poorly educated, usually not living in households or living in very small households. Uh, and so the average household size here is much smaller than in these. And so, in fact, it's precisely the targeting of the social grants that results in this group being between a rock and a, and a hard place, not eligible for the grants because they're not women with children, they're not old-age pensioners, and on the other hand, they can't get jobs because of their levels of education. So um, if there is a, a, to, be, to be a discussion on how the grants should now be modified, this must enter into the discussion. And I think um, we'll come right at the end to the idea of a wage subsidy, which, which may start ad helping address that group. So summarizing, um, with quite one of the questions that is often asked is, with all of these grants, we, we, we know that it hasn't reduced inequality. Inequality has increased, and poverty has had some impact. But 
what is is the what is the effect of the grant on e on inequality if we just take that because when we looked at the period from 1993 to 2011 and we compared inequality that measure of inequality or the, the, that outcome of income distribution is the result of many factors as we said particularly changes in the labor market so if we try to take out the changes in the labor market what has been the impact of the grants so the lower um, Lorenz curve is a curve of market income. In other words, it's the income you earn before tax and without receiving any grants, any transfers. The reddish line, brown line, is the disposable income. So that is the income you have after tax and with any grants that you might be receiving. And so this is a, a sort of hypothetical exercise. This is an exercise where you say, if you were to wake up tomorrow and your grants were removed and you didn't have to pay taxes, what would your income be and what would the distribution be? That's what we're looking at here. Of course, in the real world, you adjust, you change your savings behavior, you change your work-seeking behavior. So it's not to say what would happen, but it's trying to give an, a, a point estimate of the impact of the grants. And clearly, the grants are reducing inequality and, redu and reducing the Gini coefficient. But what now? I'm, I'm going to make a claim here which is not entirely possible to deduce from the, Gini from the Lorenz curves, but you see that there's almost no change between the curves in the top deciles. Now, this is the only group of people that pay taxes, the eighth decile up. And so what this is saying to us is that uh, tax is not being used to reduce the, 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 the income of the very rich. So the change in income distribution that results from introducing taxes and grants is happening because the grants are being targeted at the poor, not because um, the income of the rich is being substantially reduced um, through taxes. And in fact, the ta this is, of course, comparing it to the 1993 period, the tax regime has remained very constant, very stable, and many would say has become more favorable to, um, to private taxpayers as opposed to companies, perhaps, um, over this period. We can also look at the Gini coefficients with and without grant income by race group. At the bottom, you see a summary which is very similar to the curve that we looked at, and we were looking at a recent curve, say so in 2005, uh, the, uh, the, the, the Gini coefficient without grants and transfers would be 0.77, but with grants is 0.72, so a clear impact on inequality, reducing inequality. Similarly, that would have been found, but only marginally in 1995, because the scale of social grants was very small in 1995. And between the two, we can see that from 1995 to, from 95 to 2005, there's been a significant improvement uh, which results from the, from, the, uh, Gini, from the grants. And the same is found in each uh, race group, but not amongst whites, because whites are benefiting very little from social grants, from 0.52 to 0.51. And we're not benefiting really there significantly. Amongst Africans, uh, it's there, there are significant increases, significant impact of the grants. And the impact on poverty, we've said, we've looked at the impact on inequality, but the impact on poverty, similarly, uh, if you exclude the grants and, and, and you look what would have happened to poverty, this is really uh, quite dramatic. There would have been no, the number of people poor whereas previously with, with including the grants drops from 0.54 to 0.56 to 0.54 we saw that figure before without the grants the number of people below the poverty line would remain at 60% of the population 
So grants of reducing the number of people poor and similarly the depth of poverty would actually have increased from 0.4 to 0.44 in the absence of grants. So it's telling us that the economy and the way that people earn has actually got worse in, the, in, the, in those years, but it's the grants that is reducing the 0.44 to 0.28. So having a massive impact, in fact, on, on poverty. This is another way of thinking about the same data. Uh, this curve, th this curve is the curve of income distributed. This is, don't worry about the scales, but roughly that's more income, that's less income. This is the number of people. And what, we, what we're seeing is that if this is the distribution before grants, once you bring the grants in, it shifts this group of poor people to the right, and therefore there are more people there. And if we look at where the poverty line is, the, you, you can see why the number of people who are poor does not shift much, but the depth of poverty changes and is reduced. So, coming back to our, our, our outline and where we're going, we've looked at the composition and had some, got some insight then onto how the social grants and that aspect of government intervention has impacted on, on poverty and equality. But taxes and social grants are, of course, only one mechanism for addressing poverty and inequality. And it tends to be the focus of most work because it's easiest to measure and it's easiest to aggregate and it's easiest to compare across time. As we've seen, these measures have not reduced inequality and they've had a limited imp impact on poverty. And in some ways, it would be unfair to judge the government simply on that because the government has always explicitly used other forms of social spending as, the, as key interventions to address poverty and inequality. So, there's been significant spending on housing uh, and the number of people in formal dwellings has gone up significantly. That uh, is an increase of about 5, 6%, 5% of the population, which is 3 million houses. So that's a significant number of houses built uh, in this period. We're comparing, um, we're comparing the four bars. The one on the mo most on the, on the left is 1993, and 2008 is on the right. And in each case, you see a significant improvement in housing, access to piped water, electricity and lighting use, which has gone up dramatically by 30 percentage points from 50 to 80, over 80%, so it's uh, nearly a 60% increase. Electricity for cooking, similar increase, and flush or chemical toilets. So this is, these are all areas of social spending not captured in the other measures of inequality, and as we'll see, targeting the poor primarily. An extra 15% of the population had access to pipe water, 3 million houses, as I said, although there are debates about the quality of the houses, but that's a separate, separate issue. If we look at education, um, and the average number of years in education, again, in e these are income deciles, from lowest to highest, and the bar on the left is 1993, and the bar on the right is 2008, in, in between years. And in each decile, there has been an increase in the average number of years of schooling, and one shouldn't expect a big change in these, because remember, this is of the, of all the whole adult population, so most of the people being measured here are above, are already, too, we're already too old in 1994 to extend the number of years of education, so the number of years of education is diluted by the population distribution. It's only the youngest who would have benefited significantly by the investment in schooling. Nevertheless, you do see that 
um, a significant increase. And the average um, has increased from 7.4 years in 1993 to 8.9 years in, 19, in 2008. In, uh, the, uh, early on, uh, after 1994, legislation was passed to make schooling compulsory for children between 7 and 15, and the, and the General Household Survey of 2009 shows this enrollment curve. In other words, nearly 100% enrollment for children of those ages, and then tapering off, of course, in, post, uh, in, the, in the higher secondary school years. And this is government. These are most, most schools, the vast majority of schools, 98% or something, are, are public schools. They're funded by government, although they may charge fees, and depending on the income profile of the local community, and the government subsidy varies according to the fees charged. But if the fees are, um, but, it, but, but their schools can, be, uh, can apply and sometimes are required not to charge any fees because they're in poor areas, and then they get the maximum government subsidy. So this is a reflection of investment in of social spending. Spending on health is, is harder to look at the impact because of AIDS. AIDS has distorted everything. Uh, but I want to show you two pictures here. The lower curve is infant mortality rates from 1985. There's 1994. 1994 is almost the trough, the lowest point of infant and child mortality rate, the top curve. And then the AIDS epidemic uh, increases mortality in both groups. At about this peak, we start seeing significant numbers of NGOs like Médecins Sans Frontières and other, and some provinces implementing antiretroviral treatment and mother-to-child transmission treatment. And in 2004, the government policy actually changed to roll out ART, and you have a very significant impact on mortality coming down there. This, so that today, infant and child mortality are in fact lower than they've ever been before. And that's something worth, uh, worth praising and reminding ourselves about. It's not only the uh, ARV programs, of course. There's been expansion of clinics, hospitals, access to health services, and very importantly, a child nutrition scheme, which is, which is run through all the schools, uh, all the low-income low, low schools, and uh, appears to have had a significant impact on nutrition status. The next graph is just to uh, highlight, uh, to make the point even more strongly, these are the prevalence rates, in other words, the HIV serum positive rates uh, in, in different provinces, and the dotted line is South Africa as a whole, the average for South Africa. And here you see, unlike the mortality rates, which started dipping before 2004 and coming down, here there seems to be an almost constant growth, although there's a slight plateauing in some. And you might say, what's going on here? Uh, is this ineffective spending? In fact, this is a measure of how effective the spending is because this represents the largest antiretroviral program in the world. Uh, it is because these children are on treatment that they're alive, and because they're alive, they're in the population to be surveyed. So as your treatment program becomes effective and rolls out, you have more and more people who are HIV positive in the population. If there was no drop in mortality rates, then that would be a sign simply of rising incidence rates without treatment. But in fact, this, the two slides together are confirmation of massive spending in the health sector. Not all of it, a lot of it not effective, a lot of problems in the health sector, but just in terms of the question we're asking today, what is, how has social spending, has social spending been pro-poor, how has it impacted on the society? These are interventions that are as significant as the social grants. Now, the effectiveness of social spending is much harder to measure 
in, in, a, in, in the sense of whether it's pro-poor or not. And it's often done through these concentration curves. Concentration curve is a little bit like the Lorentz curve of the Gini coefficient. I'll, I'll just let me explain it briefly. This is the cumulative population, but here the cumulative population is arranged by increasing income decile. So this is the poorest 10% and in the, in the richest group, from poorest to richest. If this is the 45 degree line, and if we were to distribute grants so that each decile of the population received the 10%, then the accumulation of grants would be on that horizontal. So a neutral uh, grant distribution welfare system or grant distribution system would have the lowest decile earning the same share as the upper decile. If the lowest decile earns a greater proportion of the grant income than higher deciles, then this curve will rise above the line and it will reach only reach 100% there. If the lowest decile was earning less than its fair share, let's call it that, or its poor, then you would have a curve that looks like this. And the measure, the, 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 the sort of equivalent of the Gini coefficient, the measure of concentration is the area over here divided by the total area of the triangle. So if the grant was perfectly poor, pro-poor, and all of the money went to the various very poorest, and none of it went to anyone else, then the, then, then, then the, the uh, measure would be minus one, in fact. This is it's a negative figure. And it would be plus one if it was down here. And somewhere in between is going to be between zero on the line and minus one, or if it's not pro-poor, between zero and plus one. So with that background on, on, on the uh, concentration curves, here are the figures for different... Uh, categories of spending. School education, negative, so in other words, favors the poor, and in fact, increasingly negative, so increasingly pro-poor, and I've, we've given it a tick. I'll come back to tertiary education afterwards. All social grants, pro, uh, very strongly uh, pro-poor, and this is obvious because it's basically determined by means tests, and those include child support and disability, and old age pension, and you can see the old age pension the strongest of all. Health spending, pro-poor, uh, negative figures, increasingly negative, um, and that is a consequence of a number of factors, but perhaps the most important fact there is that anyone who, almost anyone who has a regular income, a formal sector job, uh, takes, has health insurance and uses the private sector. And so most spending in the public health system is going to uh, benefit people who do not have regular jobs, and so it's going to be pro-poor. But it's reflected also through measures of public clinics and public hospitals which have looked at access of communities, how far they are, and the proportion of a community that is within 5 or 10 kilometers of a hospital or clinic. And in terms of that, uh, the, these measures also reflect increasing, increasingly popular. Housing, housing subsidy, it's positive here, so that tells you that it's not entirely popular, although getting closer to zero. And it's doing, that, uh, it's doing that partly because housing has gone mainly to urban areas and informal settlements. So there's not been as much investment or housing subsidy to rural areas, which is where the very poorest are. And finally, the total across all these forms of spending um, reflects a pro-poor pro policy. It's possible, in fact, to create these kernel densities, which is the kind of income or distribution for assets. And those assets are things like um, access to pipe water housing, combining that also with access to public health and to, and to schooling. And the, the dotted curve shows the distribution of, of assets uh, in, in 1993 
and then that's 1999, and 2004 is the lowest curve. And what you see is that this hump of very poor people um, has come down, <coughs> reflecting that more of them have shifted into this part of the curve uh, and confirming that these interventions have reduced uh, inequality, reduced poverty, and in fact you can put it, there's a way of put, putting a Gini coefficient on that, and the Gini coefficient also shows that inequality is reduced when you use those measures. So, summary regarding inequality uh, with respect to the asset analysis is that it tells a different story from income inequality. The income Gini has worsened, whereas the asset Gini coefficients have improved. But there has been no attempt, and it's a very hard thing to do, to put a monetary value on those assets in order to get what is often called a social wage, a measure of the social wage. And because we can't do that, we can't really see the impact on poverty levels because the poverty level requires us to convert these assets and access into monetary value and compare that to the poverty line. And it also um, makes it harder to combine the income factors with the asset factors. And, uh, and so, in short, it says that we should be cautious about the uh, glib claim that inequality or poverty has increased because many of the interventions have not been income interventions. But there's still a question, which is, why, with decreasing asset inequality, such as better education, housing, you don't have to walk for an hour to get firewood, you don't have to walk to collect water, all of those things in, 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 in orthodox economics should result in increased productivity, increased ability to participate in the labor force. So why has it not been translated into reduced income inequality? And that, I think, is the research question we need to unpack, which can't be done just by looking at the stats. Um, and one of the, but one of the key reasons is, that, or the, one, the question is, why are the returns to these improvements so low? And, and the key reason, is, I think, is the structure of the economy, which actually does not have place for people who are not well enough educated. And until you get to a certain level of education, you can't really take advantage of it. So coming back to where we are as we work our way through to the final few slides, um, what are some of the explanations for these trends? Clearly, there are many factors. And uh, I'm going to, uh, and, I, and, the, and there isn't time and not appropriate here to weight them or comment on their credibility, legitimacy, but these are what people are, are arguing. After 1994, the government took a very, one might call it a liberal or open economy approach, uh, signed the World Trade Organization Agreement, committed within seven years to drop tariff barriers, to drop quotas, uh, to remove subsidies. And the economy, after years of protection, has been faced with, uh, with global competition and major sectors of the economy um, have suffered or, and in some cases, collapsed. So the restructuring of the industry has been slow, and most of that restructuring would require restructuring to jobs that are more part of a knowledge economy, service industries, higher skilled, and, that, and the country just doesn't have people with the, with the necessary education to do that. Strong labor movement. The unions, of course, form part of the government. COSATU is one of the three in the tripartite alliance that forms the government. Uh, this is particularly relevant when there are public sector strikes, where the government is trying to manage a strike with one arm tied behind its back because the union is a partner there. And the public sector, which is the largest employer in the country uh, as a single sector, often sets the benchmark for other wage increases across the economy, so it has a knock-on effect. But the unions are strong across the board and historically, and so many argue that, that, that wages are 
inappropriately high for that reason too. And inappropriate, of course, is always a relative term, but it's in terms of the productivity of that labor. There's very progressive labor legislation and many people in industry and capital oh, thanks. Many people in, uh, uh, argue that, uh, that, that the legislation is not appropriate for a country at South Africa's level of development. They argue that it's very difficult to hire and fire. It takes a year or two to manage someone out of a job um, through lots of appeal processes and, and labor courts and uh, conciliation and mediation processes. Um, and that uh, the result of that is not uh, necessarily better practice, but the result of that is that uh, industry and capital has shifted to much more capital-intensive modes and is reducing its reliance on labor in response to this in, in an economy which needs to be more labor-intensive. Strong affirmative action policy, I've already talked about that, I won't repeat that. Um, corruption in public and private sectors is often blamed that the amount of money being spent is not getting to where it should and is leading to uh, the employment of inefficient uh, and low productive uh, providers. But the reasons, the reasons in my view, those are all factors, they're factors in every economy as well, perhaps aggravated in South Africa. They, but I, I want to suggest that there are two that uh, are relevant to our discussion and which are the most fundamental. And perhaps the first one, education, is the most fundamental. That although we've seen high enrollment and an increasing number of people uh, getting through education, the quality is very poor. And then on the health side, with something like 5 million aid deaths from AIDS over the last 15 years, and there's been a massive, impact, massive effect on, on the economy and on, on productivity. This is the, um, this is the uh, these are cohorts from, of, of 29, 25 to 29-year-olds going back to 1950, so uh, up to 1982. So this cohort is now 29 years old. We can't come really much more recent than that because we're trying to measure have they completed their education. And what, we, what this shows is that the proportion with the highest, whose highest level of education was no education has dropped over the period. The proportion whose highest level was school, primary school has dropped. So most people now have a secondary education, but incomplete. But now the proportion with the matric uh, has, has increased. So in this most recent group, um, you have a significant number, maybe 30 40%, 30%, who have a matric as the school leaving secondary school leaving exam, and then the top is the percent with tertiary education. That should be a good sign, but the problem is that this is still very small and has been rather static for the last uh, since 1994. And the proportion of getting into higher education, which is a, that is a proportion of that, is low. So, whereas previously nearly half of all school leavers were getting into higher education, now only about 20% are getting into higher education. The growth of the post-school education system, has, it has stagnated. It has not grown. In fact, part of it, the college sector, as it's called, has shrunk, the part between university, school and university. And so this sector, which is the primary supplier, in fact, for knowledge and high-skill economy, uh, is the bottleneck and is, is the problem. And these people cannot find jobs. And though even at school, there are um, the quality has of, of schools, although has 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 been compromised partly because of the rapid growth in the school population. We saw that enrolment, we saw the number coming through to matric. But the, this, these are curves which uh, quantify the standardised literacy and numeracy rates in international terms. And the left-hand curve is African schools and African students. 
uh, this is coloured and those are white. And what this says is that the quality of school education in black schools and for black people is still very poor um, and not competitive at all. And all of that comes together. Uh, one of the colours has gone here. In the in the what's happened to the Human Development Index. Overall, there's a graph there that's going up something like that. Overall, the Human Development Index um, has been uh, the, the components of the index have, in, have increased. So, um, income has increased, education, which you can't see, has increased, but health has done this because of AIDS, deaths, and that has pulled down the overall HDI index so that. 15 years ago in 1990, 20 years ago we were 59th, so that was 59th in the HDI ranking, and in 2010 it's 110. So it has dropped 50 places in the HDI ranking, and that is due to the impact of health and the knock-on effects. Here are the conclusions. We've reflected the, on the, one, the conclusions about inequality and poverty. The nature of inequality has changed dramatically due to social grants. Headcount poverty is slightly improved, and the mean poverty gap is substantially better. Asset inequality has improved, reflecting proper sp uh, spending. But there is a huge risk here, and that is, as you can imagine, the fiscal sustainability of the grants and spending, which is um, with 50% of households in the country receiving a social grant. And this has resulted, the sense of poverty and the fact that so many people are not getting out of poverty and are still so poor, has resulted in a sort of explosion of very desperate debates in the last year. Uh, calls for nationalization of industries and mines, uh, calls for a wealth tax, calls for a Zimbabwean-style land redistribution. And the problem is that we don't really have economists and others giving us some good alternatives. But in my view, and uh, in the view of some of my colleagues, uh, the key problems are health, fixing education, especially schooling, building the post-school system. But those are long-term interventions. We need stuff that is more urgent, and uh, public works and state investment in the economy is one, and a batch of others are to make wages more competitive, uh, such, as, but, um, such as through a youth wage subsidy, I think in the next week, we're going to hear the Minister, Provin Gordon, make a speech, a budget speech, which might uh, include uh, the introduction of a youth wage subsidy. The, the unions are starting to look at their problems, and, for example, in the last few weeks, the clothing union in, has negotiated a deal which says that uh, any new people employed in the sector for the next three years can be employed at a discount of 30% of wages. So a very strong union sector that has never been willing to allow wages to be affected by the surplus of labor is for the first time saying, as long as you don't affect those who are already in employment, and it's only the new jobs, um, they're willing to see uh, lower salaries. And then the questions of conditional grants like Brazil, which may or may not be possible. Friends, colleagues, and members of the LSC community, uh, the challenges are there, and uh, the reason, as I said at the start for, for the speech, is to invite you to partner with us in trying to address them. And I put up a little taste of how wonderful it is to work at UCT, as I hope that if the challenges intellectually are not sufficient, there are lots of other good reasons to come and join us. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Well, thanks, thanks a lot, Max. That was a...
sort of fascinating uh, insight and with a vast amount of material there. And I'm sure there are lots of questions. Now, what I propose to do is to uh, take, say, three questions from the uh, lower tier, then three from the uh, top tier, and we'll see how the time goes. So, who has questions for Max? Hopefully none. Hopefully uh, none. Well, I'll have to go to... The, oh, no, they've got them done. Okay, the gentleman there and the gentleman right at the back. The pie charts you shared with the change in the top decile by race and gender categorization, how does that map versus population change? And does that population change support or undermine that trend? Uh, do you mean total population? There's no change in effect. The number, the proportion of the population that is white is slightly smaller than it was in 1993, but by, point, by less than 1%. And the proportion, the gender proportions um, are also almost the same. There's a slight reduction in the proportion of women as a result of AIDS deaths, which is higher amongst women. But uh, there's been almost no change. Okay. Well, I should say, uh, wait for the mic. There are roving mics. And uh, if you would say uh, who you are, uh, where you're from, that would be uh, helpful. There's somebody at the back. Okay. Okay. Hi, um, Ace Majija, originally from UCT, but I now work in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> I think mine is around the number of matriculants that have made it in the past, like in terms of the increase in the number of matriculants, but then also the contrasting number of enrollments into university, what has been one of the, what are the identified reasons why there's been a low intake adversity, but also with the intake that you've had, what has been the output in terms of percentage? We can use UCT as an example, given the number of faces that you have, what is the output in terms of percentage-wise? Because I can't imagine that you had less enrollments because of employment opportunities with matric, because we know that even university graduates struggle being employed. So why would they then not be employed? Why, why can't they be enrolled? Shall I take the question now? Mm. So yeah, there's, there's a lot to say about the education sector, which would take us probably too long. But uh, what ha the first thing that happened, the first thing to point out is that the graph I had up is proportions. So although the, n the proportion in tertiary education looks the same, the number increases, just uh, to clarify the, 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 that. Um, after 1994, in 1994, we inherited an a school education system which was fragmented both by province and by race. So there was an Indian authority which ran a matric for Indian schools and there was a colored authority that ran a matric for colored schools. And the standards of those matrics and of their teaching was very different. The first thing the government did was to combine them all into a single state authority. And that state authority chose a, a, as its standard, roughly, the standard of the white schools, which was a reasonable and acceptable standard. The result was that the pass rates from matric plummeted. They nearly halved. So after 1994, up to 2000, we saw nearly half as many people finishing school with the matric. So they were at school, but they didn't finish it. They didn't pass the final exam. And the result was that the intake to universities dropped over that period because there weren't enough matriculants to, to, to fill the universities. After 2000, uh, the numbers have picked up and they're increasing steadily. Uh, it's arguable about whether they've picked up because the numbers are there and the teaching is there or whether the standard of the exam has dropped. 
um, and, and we, we think that there's a lot of problems with the standardisation of the exam. So much so that universities, and UCT in particular, has introduced a selection test, our own entrance exam, which students have to pass because we don't trust enough. Now, that's overstating it. We use a combination, but, but, but the, we, the, the, the way that the metric standardisation fluctuates from year to year, we never know what it's really going to tell us, for sure. So, so that's part of the story, that numbers did drop, they, did, they are coming up again. At the same time, uh, the investment in universities has, has increased, but not by, by that much. So uh, universities, uh, the per capita spend on students is, is lower than it was before, but the total is higher because there's more students. Student numbers have increased by about 30% at university across the sector, from about 500,000 to 800,000. Um, you know, students at university, but the a bizarre, not a, a bizarre f formula that drives funding rewards universities for how many students they have, and the result is that universities that were either poorly managed or needed to generate more money were taking in students that, in my view, should not have been at university. They were these very weak matriculants, um, and so although there are now 800,000, it's arguable about whether there should be that many. And certainly it shouldn't expand, that sector shouldn't expand too rapidly because they'll be um, taking in students who will probably never make it. Of the universities that take in students at that level, only 16% ever get a degree. Okay? Um, at UCT, the, 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 the completion rate is 74%, um, but in, amongst the very poorest uh, students, those who are on financial aid, it's also only 50%. So even at UCT, which we believe is able to select from amongst the very best applicants in the country, those who are, come from very poor backgrounds, disadvantaged schooling, with all of the support, extra years of study, bridging programs, writing skills, all the things that you do to improve uh, academic success, um, at the moment only 50% get a degree. Wonderful answer. Uh, there were two people upstairs who, uh, well, we still got anybody who wanted to ask the questions? Yes, someone up there. Yes, okay. There's one there, one there, okay? Can you, um, hello, uh, can you compare the, the income of the uh, ANC uh, hierarchy with the income of the black population in town, black township since 1994, which is indicate uh, a good picture about the income distribution? Second, can you quantify the death, number of deaths uh, of people who died infant mortality and people from AIDS uh, due to the wrong policy of the ANC then and are there attempt to prosecute these people who contribute to this wrong policy and That's third, a, oh hold you, on hold on uh, one question you, one uh, question you've had three already there's three muzzle uh, there is attempt by the government ANC government to muzzle the freedom press in order to stop uh, the, uh, the press uh, exposing any corruption and maladministration in the government. Okay, yeah. thank you. There was another one up there as well. You got. Okay. Fine. Yeah, I'm taking note of those. Who's going to ask? It was somebody here, wasn't it? Okay. Okay, fine. Okay, there's a gentleman at the front there, one at the back, and then we'll, uh, we'll let Max answer those. Yeah, I'd like to ask Dr. Price. Um, given that the number of uh, children between the ages of, what, 2 and 15, uh, the HIV rates are increasing, uh, given that they're living longer, which, which, which is, you know, obviously good, um, 
th that's going to just you know project forward. Um, and if you look at the UN numbers uh, for South Africa projected to 200, uh, 2050, we see the population staying static at around about between 50 and 55 million, uh, whereas Mozambique, Uganda, Nigeria uh, populations are kind of doubling. So is there an opportunity there for South Africa if it consolidates, given that the population is not increasing, to put more people um, into work to service uh, the demand in, in sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah. Uh, gentleman at the back, and then uh, I'll move downstairs. Hi. Um, just wanted to know, your um, research here, is this shared with um, the likes of the Minister of Education and, and Government, or is it just sort of, you know, within academia? I mean, wh where does this actually go? Okay, thanks. Max, would you like sure. to take those? I have to say, I think the first three questions were slightly mischievous, and I'll <laughs> just uh, not, not don't want to spend too long on them. Um, most ANC people are desperately poor. Uh, not, most ANC people are not in government positions, do not have jobs. That's partly why they are, why there is a populist, strong populist faction within the ANC, which might well unseat the president and, and, and the other faction in the ANC. Those who are high earners or are in government are earning the same as other government uh, people. The particular form of corruption which has come to be with the catchword uh, tenderpreneurs, which are people who have political connections and get their tenders as a result of the connections and making huge amounts of money. And there's no doubt that uh, there's, there's uh, a lot of them and it's a, it's, it's a, it's a serious problem for, for them and for the economy. Um, I don't think it's about being ANC, it's about Having, being in power and being in and having and having systems that are not uh, transparent, the campaign to ensure that the government does not pass a le legislation to muzzle—it's not so much muzzling the press; it is muzzling the press. It's a, a secrecy. It's a, it's a bill which all countries have—a uh, bill which allows the government to categorise things as secret or classified. All countries have that. You need that. Um, what the, the problem is that. There is no public interest clause in that bill. There's no, there's no clause that says if it's in the public interest to reveal some secret, then you could be protected for revealing that. Uh, interestingly, not a lot of countries do have such a public interest clause, and one of our struggles is to talk to, 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 to campaign, uh, in campaigning against this legislation as it's drafted, uh, the government, the ANC, is able to point to a lot of liberal countries that have very similar legislation. So, but that doesn't defend, that doesn't make it okay. Uh, I'm just saying that uh, um, it's not completely uh, unusual if they've actually copied other legislation. Nevertheless, there's been, it's been a significant basis for a civil movement, which we haven't really seen since 1994, and it's been, well, we saw it with AIDS to some extent, and um, it's been very powerful, and it's a, it's a good sign that uh, there is that sort of civic mobilization. You probably know the government withdrew the bill in, in the face of pressure, but that doesn't mean it's over. It might, it might well come back. Um, now, deaths, and um, I, I, don't, I, I can't tell you exactly the number of deaths uh, from AIDS, and, but there's no, as far as I know, there's no prosecutions being contemplated for the, uh, for the iniquitous policy. Um, the question about population size and AIDS, I just want to clarify that the children, the rate of HIV in children, as we said, is going up. Uh, it's going up because they're living longer, but it is going to start coming down and it will plateau and then it will come down. And you could already see in some provinces the beginning of that shift. And that's because the mother to child transfer, baby children only get AIDS from their mothers, they don't get AIDS from sex. 
So the only the intervention required is a mother-to-child transmission intervention. Those interventions are now widespread. So, um, something like uh, 70 plus percent of, of pregnant women get tested and, if necessary, treated. And so um, we're going to see far fewer children being born with HIV. And therefore, the, the feeder into that seroprevalence is going to uh, reduce, and they'll reduce the percent of the population. So um, it's, uh, we, we're just still seeing it at, at a certain point in the curve. The population size of South Africa is expected to plateau, as you described, primarily for the same reasons that they do everywhere. It's not because of AIDS. AIDS is actually having, does not have a major impact on the population's overall size. It has an impact of 1% or 2% um, over, over, over a while, but it's because of urbanization, it's because of greater education, women's participation, labor force, all the reasons, all the proximate determinants of fertility which you find elsewhere, um, and lower, lower in child mortality rates. <coughs> so, and no doubt it will happen in Mozambique and in other countries too. It's just going to take longer before it gets there. Um, whether South Africa can assist uh, uh, anywhere else or whether it will need to draw on that labor really all depends on the skilled labor. And at the moment, there is a massive amount of immigration, most of it illegal, into South Africa from workers in the rest of the continent. They're being pushed by awful conditions in Somalia and in the DRC and in Zimbabwe, but they are finding jobs and they're taking jobs in South Africa uh, because they, for, for a variety of reasons, but very often because they have a better education. Um, in spite of the traumas in their own countries, uh, they come to South Africa with better education than South African black people. And um, I, I really worry while we're talking about it that in the next couple of weeks there, there might be another xenophobic outbreak in the country because um, it's just under the surface and there have been isolated incidents and it can just explode. And it's mostly about a perception in poor communities where there's massive unemployment that foreigners have their, are taking their jobs. Um, and, uh, and, and, and there's some truth in that. And then the, uh, I can't actually read the note I wrote. What is the last no. question? Sorry. What is the question? The last question is generally. Oh yes, do we yeah, share yeah. the results? Yeah. Um, no, look, it's all, it's all public. That doesn't mean anyone reads it. We actually, <laughs> we, we, we do quite a lot of effort. I mean, I, I make sure that people from, from UCT go along to the portfolio, parliamentary portfolio committees, we write op-ed pieces, but the most, uh, the most direct form of influence recently has been the establishment of something called the National Planning Commission under Trevor Manuel, who was the previous Minister of Finance. And we have three members of our staff on that planning commission. It's a 15-member commission. Um, and we, met, we, we've, we, we had a seminar with Trevor Manuel just two or three weeks ago. We present all the stuff. Uh, he's not, of course, the Minister of Education, so specifically the education material we do also feed into to those channels. Um, so yes, I think that uh, most of it is is being shared and and trying to trying to influence policy. Well, thank you very much. I'm sorry we've now uh, run out of time, and I must uh, uh, take Max uh, off and uh, feed him before he uh, embarks on uh, uh, the trip to uh, Canada. Uh, thank you, Max, for uh, your lecture and for answering the. Uh, questions, and I hope you will thank him in the usual way. <laughs>